In our last episode, we left off with what I think is a fairly haunting image of a man, a bandit named Barabbas, being woken to what he thinks might be his final moments, of his being led, instead, up to the outer parts of the prison, being given a a fresh tunic, and being told, out there in the morning sunlight of Jerusalem, that he is free. What? And I had you imagine that perhaps the commandant then pointed for Barabbas far up the hill and said, See? Look. There goes the man who dies in your place. Barabbas, as I said, is all of us. All humanity. We have all, whether we want to do business with it or not, been set free by the work of Jesus. But what's this? What does Barabbas see happening up there? Along the way, the teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, carrying his cross, has fallen to the ground. Well, in this episode, I want you to imagine someone else, someone up there. This man is a migrant worker from North Africa. We don't know his backstory. We don't know why he is in Jerusalem, but we do know that on this morning he's coming off what we would call the graveyard shift. He's been working out in the fields. He's exhausted. He's returning from those fields back toward the city to the hovel-like place where he lives. And as he enters into the city in that state of exhaustion, he can't help but notice the sound of the crowds much louder than usual on a morning like this. There are screams and shouts. It's clear there's a sort of a mob-like feel in the streets, and so naturally curious, he walks in the direction of the noise. And as he comes to one of the main streets leading up and out of the city, indeed, he comes upon large crowds. They're furious crowds. Some are simply curious crowds. But he edges closer to see what's going on. As he gets near to this main road leading upward, He weaves his way through the people to see what it's all about. And as he just gets to the edge, the roadside edge of the people, even in that split second, he hears, You. And every face around him looks towards that voice. But the voice coming from a Roman soldier is directed at him. coming off of the graveyard shift, exhausted, trying to just get back to his bed, at him. And the soldier gestures at him and says, Help the man. Simon of Cyrene, in that moment, sees the man indicated. A man, right in this moment, on his face in the dust and dirt, and underneath the weight of a cross. And the man is brutalized. He's covered in wounds, blood, bruises, 
He's nearly naked. For some reason, pinioned as he is on the street by the cross, for some reason there is a crown made of thorns on his head. And that's the moment when Simon of Cyrene begins to hear whispers of who this man is. He hears the name Jesus. Quickly, he is aware of all that he has heard of this Jesus, this teacher from the North Country. And even as all of this is passing through his brain, the soldier is saying, You come! And so out he comes. And with all his strength, he gets under one edge of the horizontal beam and begins to try and lift it off of the condemned man. And as he does, that man rises slowly and takes his, the left side of the crossbeam. And now, like a pair of oxen under a yoke, they begin to carry it together. No words pass between them as they walk because all that's available to the condemned man, Jesus, is just to gasp for his next breath. And there are shouts from the sides of the road, jeering, laughter, tears. As Simon and Jesus continue this slow, trudging effort up the road toward Golgotha. One of the only things Simon of Cyrene is aware of is the feeling of the vertical, the vertical beam, as it drags behind them, furrowing the road. And so on they go, Simon listening to the breathing of Jesus, ragged horse, until finally, after hundreds or even thousands of steps, they arrive at the crest. Two other criminals are already being nailed to their crosses, and trying to keep as much of the weight off of Jesus as he can, Simon helps him to lay it down flat. And all he hears as he turns to go, uh, not even wanting to look back, not wanting to make eye contact with the condemned, all he hears from the lips of Jesus is again a ragged, thank you. Simon begins walking back down into the city. It's still early morning. All he wants is to go to bed. But that's when something catches his eye. As he's walking down, he notices the long straight line of the vertical having carved that line, that furrow up the roadway. And on Jesus's side of that vertical line is just an endless stream of blood. Droplets, drips, like a rivulet running. While on Simon's side, there's nothing at all. It's all clear. Friends, if we take the time to imagine Simon of Cyrene's experience, and if we imagine him after the fact beginning to internalize 
what Jesus is doing on his and our behalf, then I would ask us, what is elicited in him and in us? How do we respond to the blood of the cross? What sorts of lives are we now meant to be living? I would say that the only proper response to the cross of Jesus is to live out lives that read like love letters to him. There's a high romance in play here, isn't there? And I, I think to be swept off our feet is the only natural posture for the Christian. I think far too many are far too casual with what is ours. Friends, we should be perpetually overwhelmed. In fact, I want you to listen to a man named Paul who does write the kind of love letter I'm talking about. This is Paul's response to the cross. This comes from Ephesians 1. Listen. Praise be to God for giving us through Christ every possible spiritual benefit as citizens of heaven. For consider what he has done. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us to become in Christ his holy and blameless children living within his constant care. He planned in his purpose of love that we should be adopted as his own children through Jesus Christ, that we might learn to praise that glorious generosity of his, which has made us welcome in the everlasting love he bears toward the Son. It is through the Son, at the cost of his own blood, that we are redeemed freely forgiven through that full and generous grace which has overflowed into our lives and opened our eyes to the truth. For God has allowed us to know the secret of his plan. And it is this. He purposes in his sovereign will that all human history shall be consummated in Christ. That everything that exists in heaven or earth shall find its perfection and fulfillment in him. And here is the staggering thing. That in all which will one day belong to him, we have been promised a share. Since we were long ago destined for this by the one who achieves his purposes by his sovereign will, so that we, as the first to put our confidence in Christ, may bring praise to his glory. And you too trusted him when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That was Ephesians 1, 3 through 13a. And this Sunday, as we gather together at the Anchor Fellowship in Colorado Springs, what we're going to do with that passage, and I want to share it with you now, is I've just gone back through it and taken those glorious words and frankly, put them into proclamational style words that would pierce our hearts. And so at this anchor upcoming, I'm going to have 17 different friends get up and read these proclamational statements over us so that we can frankly be bathed in the reality of what the blood of the cross has done. So I want to share those with you. 
And unless you're driving a car right now, I would encourage you, maybe close your eyes and listen to these sort of layman's terms words of all that was just said, all that I think Simon of Cyrene internalized after the fact, after having seen what the blood of the cross was willing to do for us. So here we go. Ephesians 1, kind of proclamationally. In Jesus, the Father has given us every spiritual blessing. He has already declared us to be the citizens of heaven. Before time began, he knew us and desired us. By the work of Jesus, we are set apart, perfectly innocent sons and daughters of God who the Father promises to care for always. The Father loves us. Jesus loves us. The Holy Spirit loves us. They, in fact, have already adopted us into their family. Our life's purpose is worship. And we worship under the banner of that grace and generosity which have been lavished upon us. The Father feels about each of us like He feels about His Son, Jesus. We are caught up in the middle of the Father's love for Jesus and Jesus' love for His Father. That is the place we live our whole lives. Jesus chose to shed His blood to redeem us and to make us new. Right now, we are totally forgiven by that once and for all act of His personal, personalized grace. The truth is Jesus, and he has set us free to know him. The wisdom of the ages is Jesus, and we may know him as our friend. All history finds its meaning in Jesus, and we may find our place in the world by coming to know him. The life of following Jesus is an extraordinary miracle. The life to come, that which follows after a life of following Jesus, will be the experience of coming into our eternal inheritance. It is Jesus sharing his kingdom fully with each of us. All things, all lives are in our Father's hands. Knowing Jesus, we are privileged to live our lives as living, breathing praises of His glory. And finally, the gospel is the good news of a perfectly finished freedom of the truth that is Jesus, of the hope to be found in one so perfectly trustworthy. Friends, thanks for listening.